Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, today I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the events that take place uh, from 1949 through to the um, mid-1950s in China and specifically uh, Mao Zedong's relationship with um, the Chinese peasantry um, and the, the way in which that relationship changes, how he um, attempts to build a power base in the countryside and the savage violence that really stems from that. Um, I've been reading recently, for anyone that wants to kind of immerse themselves in this topic, uh, Frank Dakota's The Tragedy of Liberation. I've mentioned before Frank Dakota's uh, Mao's Great Famine. Um, this is the, the kind of the, the book that comes before it. Um, that's is, is a fantastic read. And um, it's a fantastic read, really, because it's a great piece of scholarship. Um, very few Western scholars are uh, capable of really fathoming the, the rural archives um, that are um, dotted across China. Uh, but Frank Dakota has been able to do that and really bring to light an entirely different picture of Maoist China. The um, decline in popularity of um, Stalinism in the West by the 1950s amongst Western fellow travellers um, particularly after Stalin's death and then following the um, suppression of the Budapest uprising, meant that um, Western uh, intellectuals who had sympathies towards communism uh, needed to look elsewhere. And Maoism tended to attract in the 50s, 60s and 70s um, a far less critical um, and um, um, microscopic analysis uh, than Stalinism had. And therefore, the um, view emerged until really um, the events of the Cultural Revolution became too significant to ignore, that um, Maoism was in some way far more benign. Um, the period of time from 1949 through to the, the Great Leap Forward, um, when that's properly analysed, really dispels that notion. And that's really the subject of what I want to talk about today. 
Um, Mao comes to power in 1949. The Chinese communists win the civil war, not out of a massive upsurge in popularity for the Chinese Communist Party, but really because of a sense of overwhelming exhaustion. Um, the uh, Kuomintang nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek obviously have their both their supporters and their detractors, but by and large, they are they have far wider popular legitimacy among much of, much of the nation, both in the towns and cities in China, but particularly amongst the peasants um, than the communists do. Much of what the communists argue is. Um, kind of lost on the peasantry, who uh, have a, a far more traditionalist and conservative with a small c way of looking at things, and um, loyalties towards uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. The civil war that rages from 1945 to 1949 um, is as traumatic, if not more so, um, across China uh, than the war with Japan, And by 1949, the country has experienced 12 years of conflict. And as the um, uh, communists gain the upper hand, partly because Truman starts to really get cold feet about supporting uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Stalin continues in his his support for for Mao. Um, Many cities across China simply hope that the fighting can end and the cities can actually fall to the communists without too much bloodshed. The communists, therefore, when they seize cities like Nanjing or Chongqing or um, Shanghai, are an unknown quantity. Ordinary Chinese um, hope for the best, Um, some of them prepare for the worst, but nobody really quite understands ideologically what, what Mao intends, and there's a good reason for that, is that Mao has been incredibly um, cagey between 1945 and 1949 with what he plans to do. So he doesn't want to alarm the middle classes. He certainly um, talks generally of um, a, a kind of a democratic state of affairs where the Communist Party might rule, but a, a broad coalition of um, social democratic parties will be uh, accepted, uh, obviously not including uh, the Kuomintang uh, nationalists. And the um, large uh, industri- Chinese industrialists and entrepreneurs are reassured that they will not be under threat, their property will not be confiscated, you know, there may be higher taxes, but Mao is at pains to present his moderate moderateness, his moderation, his moderate side, um, he is at pains to also present this um, moderate sense of himself to the outside world and, and project a kind of um, a facade of um, being a, a national as opposed to a kind of like a, uh, an I- ideological leader. In order to enact uh, massive social change in China, um, to bring about um, modernization and modernity through um, a complete break with the past and a um, complete um, revolution in China's social uh, social system, social structure, Mao needs to build himself a support base. Um, the supporters that he's had up to now have been the guerrilla armies that have fought with him. These are observed by um, ordinary uh, Chinese um, civilians when they march into the towns and cities 
um, at the end of the Civil War as being kind of very, very quiet, very serious uh, men, normally men, some women, but normally men, um, who are um, enormously dedicated to, um, um, to Mao, to the revolution. Some are viewed as being, you know, quite kind of respectable and polite, and there is very little of the the kind of the the, the looting and violence that's gone along with the war. But the um, carters, the the carters and the soldiers who occupy China's cities, um, are there really to bring about um, revolutionary change. Um, but Mao is lacking the the kind of the national widespread support base and so he starts to build it in the countryside now here is the point at which the lie that um, uh, Mao's um, transition um, to communism was a peaceful one is is given Mao um, believed uh, or he argued that the uh, that a um, class system of oppression in the countryside existed and that um, the communists were there really to uh, to end all that. He um, wanted to redistribute the land from what he called landowners to or landlords to the peasants. Now, Frank Dakota's great kind of gift to us, his great piece of scholarship, is the um, um, the evidence that the term landowner or landlord in China didn't exist. It was a Japanese notion that had been imported. Um, the structure of land ownership across China, um, because China is such a huge country and varies geographically from you know deserts to subtropics, the structures of land ownership are immensely complex. But um, as the uh, as the tragedy of liberation points out, really quite egalitarian. There is an awful, uh, an awful lot of evidence that um, the, the peasants um, were quite capable of sharing land um, in, in a, a notionally fair way. Um, the idea that there were uh, there was a kind of a, a structure of land ownership rather like um, in in Russia of landowners and serfs um, prior to 1861, it doesn't seem to exist in China at all. It only exists after Mao introduces it. Um, Mao, however, brings about um, the uh, village tribunals where um, wealthier peasants are dragged in front of the rest of the village to be denounced, to be criticised, to be harangued, often wearing conical paper dunce caps, um, um, very often um, in, the, in the initial stages there's some violence against them. Um, within a year or two, most of the, the people who are taken before the village are, are brutally murdered in, in really not kind of systematised state violence, but very much, very much kind of angry mob violence. And Mao, this is how Mao spread um, violence to the countryside, and it was a tried and tested uh, technique used by Lenin, when Lenin during the Russian Civil War didn't really have the um, the the, the uh, military power to attack the middle classes himself, he simply used propaganda and inspired angry mobs and vigilante action to do it. Um, the first instance of violence in the countryside. Um, that Mao witnessed as a young man and terribly impressed him. He saw in 1921 um, during uh, the, the kind of the um, um, 
post-revolutionary uh, um, chaos uh, under the warlords in, in China. And he saw a, a, um, a Soviet-inspired um, war against um, what we could call landowners, but really um, landlords, but really wealthy peasants uh, in the countryside. And he thought this was um, excellent. He thought this was a fantastic thing because he, what he believed he was seeing was the old order, the old regime being torn down. And uh, something new replacing it that was going to um, revolutionise life for the peasantry uh, in the countryside. The involvement of the Soviet Union in the um, attitudes uh, towards the peasantry in China is very important in understanding everything that's going on here. Um, by 1924, the Soviet Union are um, chiefly involved in operations in China um, Firstly, supporting the Communist Party then, maybe looking uh, towards the, the nationalists as being um, the, the, the force that can kind of consolidate China against the real threat of Japan. Um, the post-war, post-Second World War involvement of um, Stalin in China was really Stalin's advice to Mao that um, given the anti-peasant, anti-Kulak campaigns in the Soviet Union and the the actual uh, real legacy of that, the famines and the economic chaos that those caused, he actually suggests to Mao that really it's, it's not worth um, attacking China's peasantry in quite the same way uh, and that there is um, there's little to be gained from it. What Mao um, believes can be gained from it is the development of a um, a peasant communism. And one of the uh, suspicions that Stalin always has of Maoist China is that the, 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 the deviation away from focusing on the urban working class as the revolutionary vanguard to looking towards the peasantry is um, a real kind of um, deviation from Marxism and something really quite dangerous and subversive. Initially, what Mao is attempting to achieve in the countryside um, is not the kind of um, collectivization and modernization in inverted commas um, that Stalin hoped to create um, during the um, the period of collectivization and the five year plans uh, Stalin's I mean, Mao's great leap forward um, that happens um, in the in the later 1950s and early 1960s um, is is equivalent to Stalin's uh, um, kind of five year plan moment. Initially, Mao is looking to do something far more cynical, far more, uh, far more base, if you will, by whipping up uh, resentments and hatreds within the countryside. He knows he can develop a support base for himself by simply um, introducing the ideas into villages, which have been largely harmonious for many, many decades, even centuries. That certain um, certain people are exploiters. Um, the uh, explosion of uh, explosion of angers and hatreds um, does an awful lot to bolster party support in those areas. Some people um, within the villages really know that they are um, involved. They are um, uh, expected to respond in certain ways. Um, there is a, a, a sense that um, the uh, new government. 
um, desires um, some kind of ritual to happen within particular villages, and the villagers very quickly learn their parts um, as denouncers, um, as uh, accusers. And there's an awful lot of looting at the end when the hapless uh, peasant is uh, murdered along with his family. Um, and the uh, looting, in a, in a way, incriminates the entire village and places them firmly within the, the purview of the state. They, they are kind of co-conspirators with the state uh, in a murder within the village. And the, the point is, of course, in these tiny tight-knit rural communities within China, everybody knows everyone else's business and everyone knows what's really gone on. So um, it has the perverse effect of really cementing the party into that local area through a kind of a collective, collective guilt. Um, one thing that tends to happen as well is that there is a cycle of retribution. The, um, Chinese, the, the People's Liberation Army clearly don't have a monopoly on violence within... Uh, rural China. So when uh, a family is denounced and destroyed within the village, um, distant relatives or close relatives very often um, come back armed to the teeth and make make their own private war on the people that have denounced their family. Um, the fear that the village then has uh, against these kinds of guerrilla attacks forces it into the hands of the state yet further. Um, the, uh, there was an account by Deng Xiaoping uh, saying that um, we, the village asked us to kill off um, some people that they viewed as being class enemies. We did so, and then their family came back and attacked the village, so the village asked us to kill those people too, and we did so. And then their relatives um, came back, and the village asked us to kill them, and eventually we had to kill hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and so the state involves itself and kind of inspires this cycle of escalation. Statistics on how many people in these initial phases of rural tribunals, purges uh, and, and executions were killed are difficult to gauge. Frank Dakota thinks probably a million uh, in the first couple of years of um, Mao's uh, takeover in China. Um, and when you compare that to the numbers of deaths under Mao's famine um, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, which conservatively are estimated at 40 million, it, it gives you an idea um, of the kind of the scope of um, this, the destructiveness of Maoism. Um, I was reading in Dominic Sunbrook's um, Seasons in the Sun, his uh, History of Britain, 74 to 79, um, the cabinet meeting um, f that followed the death of Chairman Mao, uh, where Tony Benn um, was indignant that the uh, British cabinet, who were fighting off a currency crisis at the time, were not um, wearing sackcloth and ashes over the, the death of Chairman Mao, or in his eyes, one of the, the great statesmen of the, the 20th century. Um, it's it's one of those stunning um, kind of aspects of um, Western political discourse, isn't it? That um, no cabinet minister would stand up and say, you know, why have we not celebrated, you know, the uh, anniversary of, of Hitler's death? But it's quite possible for a British cabinet minister 
um, or Western intellectuals, very often who are very removed from the violence committed by um, the people that they cheer about, to um, commiserate the, the death of someone like uh, Mao Zedong. An in, a significant historical figure, I grant you, uh, and yet one whose the destructiveness and the violence that Mao perpetrated on China really has yet to really kind of be fully acknowledged by his uh, by Western audiences of either detractors or admirers. So um, I'll be reading some more of the tragedy of liberation, and we can talk about that in a later podcast. Now, it's exam season rapidly approaching, that glorious time of year again, so if you are facing your GCSEs or A-levels, check out the Explaining History YouTube channel. You can access it via our website or just look up Explaining History on YouTube, and I'm currently posting up there some useful exam stuff for the coming weeks and months. Always, if you're stuck on anything, if you've got a dilemma, or if you just need help with an exam question, Drop me a line at info at explaininghistory.com and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.